I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. So I want to start by recognizing that it's a really tough time out there, one that's testing us collectively and individually. Whether you're working right now or singing the new Baby Shark song about washing your hands to your little ones, or both. I want to send my best to everyone listening to this podcast. I'm hoping that you and your families and loved ones and your friends are well and you all stay safe. Before travel restrictions and work-from-home policies came into effect, I was lucky enough to record a couple episodes in Sweden in February, including last month's podcast with Pia Heidmark-Cook at Inca Group and this month's episode with the Swedish Council on Ethics. Since 2007, the Swedish Council on Ethics has coordinated and directed the engagement and dialogue activities of the first, second, third, and fourth Swedish AP national pension funds. And with legislative changes driving a greater focus by the AP funds on sustainable development, the council's engagement efforts will only grow going forward. But the council is also evidence that nationally centralized approaches to sustainable and ethical investment can actually accomplish a lot in terms of organizing investor preferences and driving change which is why I'm so excited to have my next guest, John Houchin, on the show. We talk about the council's mandate, its evolution, its influence, areas of focus, and its ambitions. We also dig into one of the council's most recent collaborative engagements with the mining industry amid the collapse of the Brumodinho Tailings Dam in January last year. That disaster, which claimed 270 lives and saw the Valley's CEO charged with murder, is leading to new safety standards for the industry and investor efforts like the Global Mining and Tailings Safety Initiative. So, my guest, John Houchin, is Secretary General of the Swedish Council on Ethics, where he oversees strategy, research, and corporate engagement. He's also a member of the Asset Management Committee at Mistra, the Swedish Foundation for Strategic Environmental Research. He's worked with socially responsible investments and corporate social responsibility for over 20 years, and his experience includes Norges Bank Investment Management, where he oversaw its environmental strategy. Welcome to the podcast, John. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start out by touching on your background. Um, You've got some really interesting experiences where you've been able to look at the finance sector from a number of different perspectives, both as an asset manager, for instance, at Norges, and now at the Swedish Council on Ethics overseeing the AP funds. Um, Talk about how that happened. I'm really curious about how that evolved, both from a professional as well as a personal perspective. Right, thank you. Well, Houchin is not your typical Swedish surname. My my father is actually Australian. So in a sense, I was lucky because I, I have a mixture of Australian and Swedish as my background. And my father came to Sweden in the mid-60s. He, he worked in the steel industry and came to work for ABB, which is a Swedish-Swiss conglomerate. Uh, and he met my mother and yeah, the rest is history. So I grew up in Sweden having an Australian father and Sweden, as you know, have a long history of sustainability. It's, it's been the backbone of the Swedish mindset for a very, very long time. Uh, but growing up within a company like ABB, I worked for ABB when I was very young. I grew up in, in ABB, you can say. 
was very helpful because you you understood heavy industry and and the relationship between industry and sustainability on a very early stage. So maybe let's step back and begin this conversation by talking about just what the Swedish Council on Ethics is. What is it and why is it important? So the Council on Ethics has been around for quite a long time, going back to 2007 when it was initiated by the AP Funds. And the main reason was that the AP Funds had been engaging with global companies for a very, very long time individually. And they came to the conclusion it was not very cost efficient because they were going to the same corporate headquarters to engage with the companies. And they decided to set up the Council on Ethics mainly as an engagement a vehicle to engage with companies that was deemed to be in breach of conventions that Sweden has ratified. Hmm. And how is that mandate? How has that scope evolved? Well, I think the scope is pretty similar to what it initially was 15 years ago. And uh, I think the mandate now is very much to try to understand how we can utilize leverage because we have a very unique position in terms of leverage. So we're trying to evolve that and uh, trying to distinguish how we can become more efficient in what we do when it comes to engagement. I want to stay with that. What do you mean define leverage in in, in the sense that you're talking about it? What does that mean? And how has that grown? So we're a decently big asset owner, but we're not super big. I think the leverage position that we have is is very much that we represent Sweden and the Swedish population. And Sweden has a reputation of being very sustainability-minded. And we also have, I think, a reputation among corporations that we've been engaging with them for a very long time. We've been around for a very, very long time, and that builds trust as well. They know what we're about, and they know that our demands are reasonable to find a way forward. You know, But now there's so many engagements going on all over the world, so many different asset managers, asset owners, and NGOs, and different stakeholders setting up projects on so many issues, which is great. But we just have to be a bit smart and see where where are we needed, where do we need players like us, where should we participate. That's how we utilize our leverage, I would say. Got it. I want to come back to the engagements a little bit later. But one of the interesting features of Sweden is a lot of the regulatory change and the statutory change, in fact, that has happened since early of 2019. The rules have changed such that uh, the Swedish AP funds now have to take sustainability in a much more serious way, you know, acting as role models. But it's really forced some changes in terms of how they think about it and how they integrate it. And I'm wondering, can you frame some of that change, why it's happened and what is happening as a reaction? So going back when it all started, it started 2001 when the old legislation came in place where the funds were told to take environmental and ethical consideration without infringing the overall goal of of high returns. That was the sentence back in 2001, which turned out to be a pretty good platform for the funds to get going and then to set up the Council on Ethics to further evolve this. So I think the new legislation has really reinforced that mandate in many, many ways in terms of the outcome for the council. I think the model for the council has been deemed as good. We had a look at that model. We came to the conclusion it works fine. So looking at the model and uh, using the conventions that Sweden has signed as ratified as the underlying model for possible recommendations of exclusions, etc. And engagement, once again, as the key tool for change, because we'd been working with engagement for a very, very long time. And we came to the conclusion, this is the tool we want to use. Hmm. When you think about this legislative change and when you think about sort of the construction of a common set of values and what that means for 
the engagement that the council does. Describe it. What, what does it? How do you arrive at a common set of values? What's that process like? Well, when the norms-based and convention-based screening process started back in 2001, and the AP funds were the first funds in the world to do this screening, that was a model invented by the AP funds. I mean, the basic assumption was generally that we expected companies to behave. End of discussion. I mean, we had, during the 90s, there had been a very rapid globalization and corporate social responsibility had started to expand during the 90s. But there were large gaps in what to expect out of companies and how to behave and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's been the underlying driver for engagement. And it still is. But having said that, over the years, it evolved going from company-specific engagement to sector-specific engagement. And now we do problem-based engagement. We, we focus on the problem, the underlying problem, and we try to engage the underlying problem, which is very challenging. I know this might be outside of the council scope a little bit, but, but I'm also curious how in creating the AP system – you know, in conjunction with the council, how do you create sort of a system that provides this kind of common framework and common value set at the same time that below that allows each AP fund to develop in their own unique way relative to maybe their strengths, the asset classes they focus on, strategy types? Um, how do you allow them the space to develop um, a diversity of approaches when it comes to environmental, social and governance investing? Well, they've been working with that for a very long time, the different funds, and it's part of their competitive mandate. And I think we, going forward now into a very complicated world, I think we need to be mindful there's not one size fits all. On the contrary, there will be numerous ways to reach the aim of a sustainable planet. And I, I think we need to be mindful about that. And I think we need to see different strategies. And there's a lot of intelligent people at these funds and, and they need to try and experiment and find their own ways, I think. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious about is that as more legislation takes effect, for instance, the, the Swedish government is now potentially allowing greater ownership in illiquid or private companies. What feedback, what implications does that have from an engagement perspective, which sort of historically has been more listed, you know, equities oriented? I think in a sense, we are lucky that we have been engaging. It's been building a culture of engagement within the funds. And we historically within Sweden, we also have a history of active owners, the Wallenberg families, investor, you know, big owners in, in large multinational companies. And, and I think we've built that culture. It takes a while to build that culture internally within the fund. So I think we're well set for that, but it is challenging. But having said that, I think a bigger issue for the financial industry is trying to be close to the underlying assets. I think that's the challenge we have ahead of us now because we're moving into passive or everyone's moving into passive. And unfortunately, we're getting further away from the underlying assets when at this time we should get closer and be more active and a more active owner within the underlying assets. So it's a challenging time right now. That's interesting. I guess I want to sort of pick apart that critique because you find that you know, there is more and more literature. You can find arguments for, you know, how to integrate ESG or even engagement at the passive level or at the quant level. You sound a bit skeptical in terms of the ability. Well, it's not the ability, but I'm a bit concerned, honestly, that we tend to do overlays and systems and computer programs and what have you. But my humble experience, having done sustainability all my life, and I'm firmly grounded in reality, is that it, it's very challenging when you get to the ground. And nearly every case has its own individual flavors. Every company I've met, and I've met 
thousands of companies over these years. They have unique cultures, unique ways of resolving things. And and to really properly understand sustainability, you need to work with it in that way. So we have a challenge because financial markets are moving in the other direction right now. We just need to be mindful about that and be, maybe a bit humble about that as well, I think. Huh. Yeah, you often hear this this uh, the argument for why uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance, needs to be mainstreamed. Sustainable investing needs to be more mainstreamed. But when you think about mainstreaming engagement, does it look different from how it was, you know, sort of it's been, you know, the orthodoxy of, of engagement, you know, traditionally? Does it have to? Because you're talking about, like you said, passive, not just impact-oriented, you know, active managers. I think it takes a while to become a active manager in terms of sustainability. It takes a while to develop that knowledge. I mean, when the AP Fund signed up for the PRI, there was, what, 20, 30 signatories to the PRI. We have 2,400, whatever, signatories to the principles of responsible investment these days. It's a learning curve. It's a maturity issue for the whole organization. Who are we? Where do we want to go as an organization? So it takes a while. Having looked at the AP funds and being part of the AP funds for a long time, I can see how we've matured into that position. So it is a process and one has to be mindful of that as well, I think. If you were to keep going on that critique of of the financial system of, of, of investors, let's say broadly, what do we need to do more of? What do we need to be better at, frankly? Well, I think sometimes we simplify solutions. I'm a bit concerned about that. I think we need to be a bit humble, which is not usually the key aspect of the financial industry, to be honest, and try to find, being closer to reality, try to understand what reality looks like. Uh, I mean, basically, the whole world is now a bit desperate for silver bullets, quick solutions. And, and I am concerned that there are market participants who are running down that street sort of shouting, oh, we, we can solve this. This is what we need to do. Whereas I think in reality, the challenge is just enormous right now. And it could be a backlash against all this going further down the line as well, I think. What do you mean by backlash? Well, I think if you make promises and then you can't fulfill those promises, I think it could undermine, I mean, in my mindset, the financial industry is very important. It's a very important mm. actor, and we need to be mindful about that. And we, there's already an underlying criticism against the whole financial industry, what it is and what it stands for. And now we're digging into sustainability and climate change and all this. And there are big promises out there, and we just need to play this in a smart way, I would say. Let's go into some of the engagement efforts that – the council has played? I mean, first of all, I'm kind of curious, how does the council go about absorbing the information from the AP funds? Obviously, there's the exposure from an investment perspective and identifying instances, circumstances that it wants to get involved with. So over the years, we've been working with different research providers, of course, and we've built our radar systems and we work with other investors and a lot of NGOs and civil society feeds into our systems. And we've got a pretty big network out there. I mean, the AP funds have approximately 3,500 companies in the portfolio, not as big as MBIM, who are close to 10,000 companies, but still a substantial amount of companies. You're a universal owner. Universal yeah. owner. But having said that, we know many of the companies since a very long time back. We know their history. We know their legacy. We know a lot about their culture. We know who they are. We know what they've been doing, what they haven't been doing. I think we we are pretty well set when things come up and when there are issues. Having said that as well, I think many companies have become a lot better at handling smaller issues. 
they they don't sit around waiting for us to contact them. They they go to work, and it, it has changed a lot over fifteen years. I would say. Yeah. So in this sense, I mean, there's a system in sort of place where you can either identify opportunities or maybe even be contacted with another asset owner or, or a big stakeholder, and you've got a network of support out there that can sort of unpack the problem, identify maybe the opportunities to resolve it, and build this support in terms of asset under management. Sometimes we don't really need that. I mean, in general, when there is an issue, we dig into it immediately and we we set everything in action. There is a number of things that needs to be in action. It's a pretty straightforward. We're trying to understand what is the issue at hand here. We try to avoid gatekeepers and we try to get to the problem in general. That's that's our humble experience. One of the interesting things, too, is that, you know, when I look at the wins um, or the sort of successes in terms of engagements that the council talks about on the website, um, there are a lot of issues that happen to be very diverse. So Facebook and digital rights, the legalization of cannabis, the impact of pesticides on biodiversity, oil companies, long-term climate work, deforestation in South America, and tailings dams most recently in Brazil. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, what's the commonality or is there a commonality, you know, within all of these issues or does it maybe reflect your sort of changing areas of scope or interest? Well, I think the key driver here has been over the years, as I said initially, we've been engaged with most of the sectors over the years for numerous, numerous reasons, environmental issues, corruption, human rights breaches. There's been so many different reasons. I think we've become pretty good to see and understand when there's a topic that's maturing and it's becoming mature for the kind of engagement that we want to do or that we need to do on a more on a, on a larger level on, on a bigger platform and that's when you see the kind of engagements that you just described i would say and how long is a typical engagement oh it differs very much i mean some engagements are, are done over a few hours quite <laughs> frankly and it could be simply highlighting to a company that we found something they agree, they send people out or they, they dig out more data, they send it out and they say, we're, we're changing this, we're doing X, Y, Z, and then it can be assessed and we're fine with that. To my point previously, many companies these days, they have good personnel and, and they want to resolve these issues as well. Other things can take a very, very long time, of course. And in general, you have a distinction between products and behavior, I would say. So behavioral issues are pretty quickly resolved when you have issues based on behavior, whereas product-related issues can be more complicated, I would say. Mm. I want to go back to the one question about the nature of engagements and if it's changing or if it's evolving or how it's evolving. And I ask that because it feels like as you've had the emergence of initiatives like the Principles for Responsible Investment, PRI and TPI, the Transition Pathway Initiative and, and others. Um, it, it's been interesting to see financial actors get more cohesive around issues like this. And I wonder if the future of engagement becomes less about firms. Uh, certainly this will always be there, but engaging directly with companies on their own, but there'll be much more priority given to these big collaborative engagements. Yeah, I, I think our experience is, I mean, the council started off engaging with single companies and then a few years later we started engaging with, with the whole mining industry and the mining sector doing wider proactive uh, engagements and trying to raise the bar and the, the minimum level of responsibility within the sector. 
And now, quite frankly, after the tailings dams engagement, I, I think we are at the stage where we're trying to engage with the underlying problem, which is so much more challenging because you get into regulatory, national regulatory issues, et cetera, et cetera. It's uh, trying to avoid a race to the bottom in general, which which is where the world is at right now on so many issues. Yeah. So let's dive into this because the tailing dams issues is pretty important. This has been a recurring problem um, highlighted by the fact that, what, a year ago we had the Brumo Dimno dam collapse, the death of 270 people, not to mention the environmental damage and the fact that the CEO is now charged with murder. Describe your involvement and how you've not just reached out to Vale, but the underlying industry and really worked to develop a better standard system. So we have been engaging with the mining industry for a very, very long time due to numerous reasons. Obviously, there are human rights issues and environmental issues and so on, corruption, et cetera, et cetera, within the mining industry and has been for a very long time. But we had the Samarco accident four years ago, which was also in Brazil when the Mariana Dam broke, which was co-owned by Vale and, and BHP. And we engaged pretty extensively on that. And we were one of the few investors to actually fly down to Brazil to the Mariana Dam to review what BHP and Vale had done post the San Marco accident. And I was joined by the few other investors, but frankly, the investment community didn't really engage on San Marco. And uh, there was a lot of demands on Vale in terms of their remaining dams and third-party verification was one of the demands that we had. And when the... Um, well, can I actually pause you for a second? Yeah. When you got on the plane four years ago and flew back after having that engagement with, with BHP and uh, Vale, um, did you feel like the message got was sunk in? Was the, Did you expect change? I think, I think our experience now, post-Bromadinho, is that we probably need to engage much deeper on these kind of structural issues. That's unfortunately the point taken on Brumadinho because when Brumadinho happened, I was personally very affected. I mean, 280 people loses their lives and you start to wonder what, what could I have done? What could we have done to further put pressure into this system? And I think when it comes to engagement, I think on a personal level, our understanding right now or my understanding right now is that the regulatory systems on many of these issues isn't working properly. And this is something we need to address if we're going to address problems going forward. So in the instance of Bromadinho, I mean, together with the mining industry and together with UNEP, we're now taking forward a global, one global standard on tailings dams and how to manage risk within tailings dams, not one local standard or one national standard for one country. It's going to be one global standard. I think we need more of those going forward because we need we need some sort of efficiency within the regulatory frameworks as well. And I think we as long-term investors need to be assured that there is a certain quality within the regulatory frameworks as well. So it all fits together. And that is challenging because we are not big organizations and we need the help of, of industry and national setups like the UN, et cetera, to, to manage that. How was this pressure received by the industry post-Promodino? I think everyone was in a bit of state of shock, to be honest. Obviously, you become defensive as an industry when you've had an accident like Brumadino. Having said that, there is always leadership within every industry. And a number of leading mining companies totally agreed with us that this had to be addressed in a very, very serious manner. But it is challenging. It is very challenging. And, and the mining industry is built up of so many small 
one single mine mining companies all over the world. So it's going to take a while to get this going on. Hmm. And it's a pretty large coalition. I mean, some of the other names that you're working alongside are the Church of England, APG, New Zealand Super, um, uh, GPS Central. Yeah, I think we're back at about $14 trillion. So it's probably one of the biggest investor engagements that, that we've ever done. But it is, it's going to take a while. And I think back to my previous points, if we're really going to dig down and get close to the underlying assets, it is challenging. It takes a while. So what learnings, when you look back, particularly at this instance, because you've, it sounds like are working towards a global standard at a time where sometimes it feels like there are too many standards and there are too many at the regional level or at a sector level. So, I mean, that is a big win, but what are the learnings out of this example that you can apply going forward into other situations? First of all, let's not be afraid. I think we need to understand that we are where we're at. I think when it comes to the council on ethics for the AP funds, I think we've matured and we've come to the understanding that this is a role we need to play in order to get that the kind of sustainability and and also in order to feel secure that the companies we invest in, that they, they can perform to the expectations that we have on them for, for the long term. So we need to have efficient regulatory frameworks on a global basis on so many topics going forward. And I think, we, I think we've learned a lot from this process, how to manage that. And it's going to be interesting going forward on this one, that's for sure. I want to stay on this sort of subject of frameworks and standards because it's, it comes up pretty frequently on this podcast. You know, when you look at sort of initiatives that are driving non-financial reporting, there's something like 2,000 of them. I think there are more than 400 frameworks, which is incredible. There's a lot of innovation coming out of this space. Importantly, with TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, as well as other initiatives. But I guess the question is, which ones are important? Which ones should we prioritize? And which ones are distracting in a sense? So I, we, we look at them as a staircase, I would say. So at times we are on a very flat service and you get all these structures coming up. But then every now and then we need to step another step up, which means we need to kill a few darlings and we need to get focused. And I think... To your point, sometimes it just gets too many. We need to get rid of quite a few. We need to focus. We need to structure this going forward. And I think we are at that stage on a number of topics now that's getting into that maturity. Climate change is definitely one, to your point, where we need to focus now. And we need to focus our energies as an industry and really push this one. Because first of all, there is responsibility and expectation on the sector to be active on this one. And secondly, there are so many initiatives out there in so many ways, and uh, it's going to be big. Do any other sectors kind of immediately come to mind in terms of replicating what you've done or what you're doing in mining? Are there extractive sectors? Well, I, I think one of the issues that we've been looking at for a very, very long time is child labor and slave labor, and, and um, we're trying to find ways going forward on this issue if we can find ways, platforms to manage it on a global basis. We're looking at digital identities and systems like that, if we can address the whole issue. So we are looking at global issues, trying to find one solution or one standard that we can utilize. And we'll be looking at, I think, a lot of issues in that way going forward. On that topic, are there any other work streams, upcoming events, or areas of focus that you're spending time on um, going into 2020? So one of the issues you raised previously is the tech industry, and, and I, I mean, it's a wide industry, of mm -hmm. course, but it's grown very rapidly. 
And I think, quite frankly, the responsibilities they have for the world that we have these days is enormous. And trying to trying to set forward a set of expectations from the investment industry and from the asset owners long term, how to manage human rights, integrity, freedom of speech, all these very, very, very challenging topics. But this is something we're working on right now. And I, I think that's going to be a bit of a long run. It's going to take a while, but we have to get to it because... Yeah. With the idea of producing sort of a framework around specifically digital rights? Yeah, but... The, the whole industry, how are we going to manage mm. this if, if, you, if you talk about the internet or or, or web page solutions it's it is very challenging, but we are there right now and and then we have issues like artificial intelligence and and uh, machine learning and all of these issues coming from behind and i think I think these large players they need they need guidelines they need structures within the companies now they need to recruit a different set of people with different kind of experiences to what they 've had and they need to start working and uh, yeah. it's it's very challenging for many of these companies I would say what's been the response in terms of your initial sort of outreach to them are they receptive to to even having this conversation <laughs> I think they're getting there I think uh, they are responding. I think a lot of these companies have internal discussions about the challenge and expectations on them. There is an understanding that they've expanded very rapidly and they're having an impact on this planet that I don't think they could fathom, you know, a few years back. And they are responsible people behind these companies and they want to be deemed as it's their legacy as well, I guess. So, and that's very typical for many issues over the years the council has engaged on. It's like a bit of a ha all of a sudden it sort of erupts and, oh, we, we had this kind of impact. We weren't really aware that we had this impact. And then you have a long process of trying to manage that systemic impact you have, you know. So, How much harder is that engagement, you know, relative to, let's say, the mining companies or the oil sector where, I mean, you have oil players pretty much in every region. You can point to climate action, you know, as the impetus. But the internet, tends to be more U.S.-oriented, uh, privacy rights, you know, are probably less formed than other forms of legislation. You don't have an anchor-like climate action to stick to. I think we actually have some pretty good internet companies coming out of Sweden as well. We, we started <laughs> Skype and Minecraft and, and Spotify. I, I think we have a culture of that here. We have some good players in Europe as well. I, so, and, but, but, Quite honestly, I do think the discussion in America is quite strong on this topic as well. It's quite frankly, it's a no-brainer. Everyone knows this is going to be a topic going forward because the new world is the new world and we need to manage that in a responsible way. So uh, I'm quite optimistic, to be honest, on this one. Good, good, great. So I want to finish up on one last question uh, that I ask all interviewees, which is students are a big part of the audience. Um, I get a lot of feedback for them. I'm just incredibly impressed with with how much interest there is in some part of sustainability, um, whether it's on the finance sector, the corporate sector, or the NGOs, or multilaterals. And people are always interested in terms of advice. What would you give to these students? So I meet a lot of students in my daily work as well, which I'm proud and happy of, and I find it really important. And my main message to them is that, especially right now in Sweden, I think I wouldn't use the word depression, but but people are a bit sad looking at the future of the planet. They lose a bit of energy, they lose a bit of hope. Uh, and I tell them it was the same when I came to the conclusion where the world was happening or going 30 years ago. Uh, and it's easy to get caught there, but 
that's not really the strength of at least Sweden. We've always been fighting above our size and being a bit optimistic and having a worldview. And I think we need to encourage people to to be optimistic. It, it, frankly, it's too late to be pessimistic. We just have to be optimistic. So uh, that's my message to them. That's a good way to end it. Um, so look, it's uh, it's been fascinating to unpack what sustainable investing represents to the Swedish Council on Ethics, how Swedish legislative change is embedding this into practice, and why the council is playing an increasingly prominent role in corporate engagement around the world. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with John Houchin, Secretary General of the Swedish Council on Ethics. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on itunes soundcloud spotify and podbean and last this podcast is an open educational resource it's meant to be shared and if you enjoy it please take a second to review it on itunes i'm also really interested in your views ideas and opinions so feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com